Jesus, we just thank you that your presence is tangible in this room. Father, we lean in on the anticipation of your goodness this morning. And we lean in to the belief that you want to be kind to us this morning. And we lean in to prepare our hearts, our minds, for making way for your goodness to be made even more tangible and manifest in our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, we open ourselves to you even more. And we just say, you are the one who leads us into the experience and encounter of truth in the person of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you lead us into the encounter again? Even as I share this morning, even as we have time of hangout and worship afterwards, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would be consistently leading us into a fresh encounter with beautiful Jesus today so that the toxic grip of hopelessness would be broken and that hope, which is the eager anticipation, the confidence of an encounter with your goodness, would take root in our hearts afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. Feel free to take your seats, but this is not an invitation to go into passive mode. This is an invitation to um, move up a gear in receiving. And so I, I really want to ask you again this morning, Please, please, please uh, take the posture that would make it easiest for you to receive from Jesus. Um, He wants to do so many incredible things in our hearts today. As I start speaking, I think you will, um, like I've been all through the worship time, be amazed at how much Jesus has hope on his heart for us this morning. Because from the first song in the worship time, I was like, okay, this is the right preach. This is the right message for this morning. So I feel like God is wanting to massage something into our hearts and really break some chains that have held some of us captive for many, many years. And you know, the longer we wait for breakthrough, the louder the enemy's lies can seem in our ears about whether God really cares and whether he sees. But I feel like this morning, God wants to um, readdress some of what the enemy has been saying and set the record straight. And so um, I'm really excited for what he wants to do. Uh, Okay, I'm going to say this because it's just fun. (laughs) Um, Not only do I know that God wants to meet with us this morning because of the worship time, but while I was praying and preparing in my room, um, I, I was just meeting with Jesus, and suddenly I heard someone in the room next door to me break out in Whitney Houston's, I will always love you. (laughs) And I just want to say, I don't know who you are, so I won't be able to name and shame you in this moment, but thank you, because that entertained me a whole lot while I was preparing this message. So I know that God wants to do good things this morning. Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the life of Abraham. Yesterday we did Esther, today we're going to do Abraham. And I'm going to talk you through 10 chapters of his story um, because it would take far too long to read. Um, and then we're going to um, just look at some signposts in the story um, that I believe God wants to use to bring us into greater freedom and a greater revelation of our, his heart for us. 
So the story of Abraham and Sarah, which is found in Genesis, we're going to be talking through Genesis 11 right through to Genesis 21. Um, It actually starts before you get to Abraham and Sarah, because the story, their story starts with Abraham's father, Terah. And we're told that Terah was a man who lived in Ur of the Chaldeans with his three sons and his family. And right at the beginning of his story, we're told that his sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, um, were with him. But unfortunately, in the land of Ur, Haran died. And then, Abraham de- uh, and then Terah decided that he wanted to journey towards the land of Canaan. So he sets off on his journey, which is interesting later on because that's exactly where God leads Abraham to journey to. But we'll get to that in a minute. As Terah and his family set off towards the land of Canaan, they come to a place called Haran and they stop short of where they'd intended to go because they find a village of the same name as the son who died in Ur of the Chaldeans. It's an important point in the story because for you and I, we need to understand that unless we deal with the wounds of our past, we'll never be able to make it through all the way to where God has set for our destiny. Terah hadn't resolved the death of his son Haran. And even though he sets out towards Canaan, he stops short because he comes to a place called Haran and he cannot move on towards where he was setting off in the first place. I want to encourage you, whatever your past, whatever the hurts that you're carrying with you, sometimes in the um, Christian world, we can kind of misunderstand faith uh, and use it as a way of just plowing through pain rather than really processing pain. I want to tell you, you have got to process pain. You've got to process your disappointment. You've got to look at face to face and talk to Jesus through all the things that you wish he'd done that you didn't see happen. Because unless you do that, you will always find places that bring you to a place of stumbling rather than being able to move past them towards your destiny. And so the story starts with Terah, but unfortunately Terah hasn't processed his pain and he's stops short of Canaan, stumbles at Haran. But then we're told that in that place, God speaks to Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And he says to them, I want you to leave this land. And I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And God starts making them promises. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. And I will make you into a great nation. And everyone who blesses you will be blessed. And everyone who curses you will be cursed. It's quite a profound promise that God makes him. Speaking out of the blue, Abraham had no concept of who this God is, but God appears to him and makes him this outrageous promise. And we're told in the story that Abraham was 75 years old when this promise was made to him. And so Abraham and Sarah, in real obedience to the promise of God, they set out. They don't know where they're going, but they start going towards Canaan. And we're told over the next number of years, they start traveling around Canaan. And God repeats the promise to them. But every time he repeats it, he makes it bigger. So the next time God appears to Abraham, he says, look around you. This land that you see, all of this land, I'm going to give it to your offspring. And then a little while later, God appears to him and again again and says, look everywhere because it's not just this land that you're stepping on. Stepping on. It's all the land around you will be given to your offspring. And this time he says to him, your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. The promise is kind of gaining an acceleration and momentum and it's getting bigger and bigger. And then the next time God meets with Abraham, and this is in chapter 15, God meets with him and he says to him, uh, he starts speaking to him and Abraham says to him, God, you keep making these promises about my offspring. I don't have any children. So every promise you're making is gonna come through my servant's line. That doesn't seem very fair. And God says to him, he makes a covenant with him, a solemn vow with him at that point and says, no, you will have a son. Look up at the sky, Abraham. Look at all of the stars. Your offspring through your son will be, as numerous as the stars in the sky. Again, the promise is gaining in momentum. And then we get to Genesis 16, and we're told it's 10 years since the promise. 10 years since God started laying the seeds of hope, and nothing has happened. 
And we're told at that point in the story that Sarah comes to Abraham and says, look, you're 85, I'm 75, this isn't going to happen. So let's help God along because he obviously needs a little bit of a boost from us. And here's my servant Hagar. Why don't you take her? Because it was very common in those days for the servant girl of the wife to really become the concubine of the husband. Take Hagar. This is what everybody else does anyway. Take Hagar. Let her fall pregnant. And we'll see all the promises of God come through in this way as we help him. And she says something very interesting. She says, because it is God who's prevented me from having children. See, it's really interesting interesting. When we experience delay of promise, we start creating theologies around the character of God in order to explain our disappointment. The problem is we're creating a God in our image rather than God as revealed in the person of Jesus. Because the place of tension is a painful place to be. And that's where Sarah finds herself. He's promised. He said he's going to be good. We're in the place of tension, though, because delay is here and actually hopelessness is creeping in. So what we'll do is we'll sacrifice the revelation of his goodness at the altar of his sovereignty. What we'll do is we'll say, oh, no, God is really in control. He's actually the one who's orchestrated this scenario for me. He's the one who's prevented me from getting pregnant. He's the one who's given me this sickness. No, no, this cancer that isn't being healed must be from God because we can't possibly say that he's not sovereign over this. If not, I will start to feel out of control. So I will create a theology to support my disappointment rather than come to the place where Jesus revealed himself as the one who is always good and the one who is always willing to heal and the one who never gives sickness to his children, but will sacrifice that in order to feel like we've got some level of control in the place of tension. Don't do it. Do not sacrifice his goodness at the altar of his sovereignty. This Theology has crept into churches where it's like we have got to be the defender of his sovereignty. So even when the worst things happen, we lay the blame at his feet because we feel it's unthinkable to say anything else. But actually what we do is we make him out to be an abusive father. Which one, I'm just going to keep going with this if that's okay for a second. Which one of you parents in the room would give your child cancer to teach them a lesson? Anyone? I've got a three and a one-year-old, and I am not a perfect mom, but I can tell you even I wouldn't do that. And you've, before you start saying to me, oh, no, no, you're, you're using human pictures to define God. When God says his good, what he means is like a spiritual good that we can't understand. And then we try to redefine goodness in order to make it make sense with a God who would give us sickness. Well, Jesus throws that one right out because he says, even you who are evil, would you give your sons a snake or a scorpion when they ask for bread? No. But your good father in heaven, how much more will he give good things to you? Jesus defines the father's goodness in human parenting terms. And so we know that we, even in our weakness, who wouldn't do those things to our children unless we were evil or abusive, how can we ever claim that God would do that? He's so much better. He's so much kinder. But Sarah didn't know that. And so in this moment, she comes to terms, she creates a theology of God as one who is kind of in control and one who puts things uh, that are, I'm not saying that God isn't in control, by the way, but we can talk about that later. She creates a theology where all the bad stuff that's happening to her is God doing it to her actively. And she says, let's help him along with his promise. So sure enough, Hagar goes and sleeps with Abraham and she gets pregnant. But as soon as that happens, there's a rift that comes into this family. And the pain, rather than being resolved, actually goes deeper because human wisdom can never sustain kingdom promises. 
And we can try to accelerate the uh, fruition of kingdom promise through, through human wisdom. Every time we do that, we will cause more and more problems. You need the miraculous in order to see the kingdom come. We cannot do it through human wisdom. And so a problem happens because Hagar gets pregnant and then we're told that she treats Sarah with real contempt. And so this relational breakdown happens. And then Sarah goes to Abraham and starts blaming him, even though it was all her idea in the first place. This is your fault. Look at what's happening. God made these terrible promises to you. He raised up our hopes. And look at us now. I'm still barren. I still have no children. And now this servant girl, is treating me with contempt and it goes from bad to worse and then we're told 13 years pass and Abraham is now 99 and God meets with him again and God reinstates the promise again And God says to him, no, no, the promise is actually getting bigger now, Abraham, again. And he changes his name, Abraham, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Because the promise has now gained in momentum again. And not only will you be a father of a nation, but you will now be father of nations. And they will come and they will grow and they will be like the dust. And all of those things that he said, he reiterates. But now we're talking about not just one nation, but many, many many multitudes. And we're told at this point in the story that Abraham laughs. And this is the first marker in the story. Abraham laughs and he says to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And we're going to talk about that in a second. So bookmark that for a moment. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God says, no, I've seen Ishmael I'll bless him, but he's not the son I promised. And for the first time, God explicitly says, you will have a son through Sarah. She will bear you a son. Everything that I'm promised will come through Sarah's son and you will name him Isaac, which means the son of laughter. And then we're told God appears to Abraham and Sarah by their tents in the form of three men. And God comes to them and God speaks to them. And God is speaking to Abraham by the tents and Sarah is overhearing it. And the promise comes, this time next year, Sarah will have a son. And we're told marker number two, Sarah laughs. And she says, now when my body is worn out and I'm old. Will I have this pleasure? And we're told the way of women had ceased to be with her, which basically means all hope is lost. See, at the beginning of the story, there was hope because Sarah was barren, but she was still having her periods. At this point in the story, all hope is gone because she's way past menopause. And at this point, God comes when all hope is gone, where any human possibility has long since evaporated. God turns up again and very specifically says, no, no, now is the time I'm going to do this. And so when she laughs, she's not laughing because it's funny. She's laughing because it's incredibly painful. Bookmark number two. But we're told that just a little while later, In a couple of months, sure enough, God comes to Sarah, he visits her, and he does to her as he promised. Sure enough, she falls pregnant. And within a year, Isaac, the son of laughter, is born. And marker number three, we're told that she laughs and she says, God has made laughter for me. And all the peoples will come and laugh over me and laugh with me. And then a couple of years later, when Isaac is weaned, he would be about two or three at the time. So Ishmael would be about 15 or 16 at the time. We're told that Abraham throws a huge feast in honor of Isaac, this son of promise, this son of laughter. And we're told, marker number four, last bookmark, that Ishmael stands and laughs at Isaac And in that moment, Abraham and Sarah make a decision to send Hagar and Ishmael away. 
It's a 10-year, 10-chapter span of 25 years of journeying with a promise that became bigger and bigger and bigger and ever more outrageous until God eventually did what he had said. It's 25 years of hopelessness. It's 25 years of pain. It's 25 years of processing disappointment. It's 25 years of a journey. But it's interesting because the writer bookmarks the whole thing, consistently punctuates the story with laughter. And if you're a Bible student, you'll know this, where there's repetition, there's intention. And these moments of laughter are pointing us to something. And so we're going to look at these repeated punctuations of laughter in the story. The first one I like to call the laughter of weariness. So this is Abraham's moment of laughter after God is, has promised him and promised him and promised him. And this is 24, 23 years after the promise first came where things have gone downhill. Isn't it interesting that the longer time went on, the further away from the promise they went. Sometimes we feel like when God promises something, God has given me this awesome prophetic word, we feel like as time goes on, gradually, surely, we must gain momentum towards the fruition of the promise. But I want to tell you, kingdom promises sometimes don't come to fruition in that way. In fact, often you find that the direction the promise is going in, you seem to be going further and further away from as time goes on. And no matter how hard you try, and no matter how many things you try to orchestrate, or no matter how many doors you try to push on, you're like, what is going on? You told me this now five years ago, 10 years ago, and I'm further away from that today than I was when you spoke that thing to me. How is that possible? Surely this can't be God. Well, Look at the story here because it's definitely God. Because the thing about kingdom promises is, is that they don't need to happen through gradual trajectory. That's what we think in human terms. Because we think B follows A, C follows B. That's how we work. We're like it's step by step. It makes sense that way. But I want to tell you, kingdom promises, sometimes you're at A and then you're suddenly at Z. Because he's the God of the suddenly in an instant. Sometimes he works through logical process. But I want to tell you, after 30 years of walking with him, I found often that he doesn't work through logical process. Don't give way to hopelessness when the enemy is telling you you're gradually going the wrong way. Because he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't understand the kingdom. The enemy doesn't understand the way God works. If not, he wouldn't have looked at the cross and thought he was victorious. But the enemy doesn't understand kingdom breakthrough. Don't give in to the hopelessness he tries to speak to you. Because we serve a God of the suddenly in an instant. But we're, here we have it with Abraham. 23 years after the promise has been spoken to him. And he's standing with God and God is speaking to him. And he's saying to him, listen, this is going to be awesome. And it's about to happen now. And Abraham says, oh, if Ishmael would only live before you. What does he mean? He means, can't we just use Ishmael? Because I'm tired now. That's what he's saying. Because you know, greatness is costly. Greatness is tiring. Destiny isn't easy. I love it when people come up to me and are like, oh, you know, I really want to be the next Heidi Baker. Do you? Really? Sure, she sees amazing things. Wow, that woman. But do we understand the pain? Do we understand the process? Do we understand the hours? Do we under... Greatness is costly. I'm not saying it's not brilliant because listen, when you're following the plan of God for your life and when you're walking in the destiny that he's spoken over you, his grace is more than enough for the adventure. And honestly, the destiny that he's spoken over you, you wanna follow that because it's gonna be the best place for you to be. But it's tiring. Julian and I often joke, we're like, why don't we just retire to the country? 
We have this like conversation. Should we go, <laughs> should we go live in a vineyard in France? Because sometimes it's tiring. Because often we want to live by sight, not by faith. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Like, God, can't we just downgrade the promise just a little bit? I really love what you're saying and all about the great nation bit. But can't we do it in parameters that I can control? Can't we do it in parameters that I can define? Can't we do it in parameters that give me just that little bit more sleep? But we're told that it's faith that pleases him. And faith operates in the unseen realm. So many of us are living with big promises and we're trying to filter them through the realm of sight, not the realm of faith. Listen, weighing up prophecies isn't about us hearing the prophetic word and then weighing up how reasonable it sounds. Now, I was pretty sure it wasn't God because that doesn't sound like me at all. I couldn't possibly do that. That sounds like it's probably God in that case. Again, I said this yesterday, I want to say it to you again. If the life you're living is reasonable, plausible, makes sense in a non-Christian context, you have enough energy and strength for it every day, you are not living the fullness of what God made you for. Because the destiny that God has for you operates in a realm of faith, which is unseen, which means you're consistently going to be stretched in the parameters that we can control. But wow, if we lean on him and if we allow him to do what he has promised, then we will see the most outrageous miracles and impossibilities happen right before our eyes. It's so worth it. But we have got to walk in that unseen realm. I had an encounter with God not so long ago now where um, I saw myself as a small child and I had wrapped myself around the father's ankles and I was like, oh, this is lovely. We're so close. I love you. And it was, it was great. And then I was saying, go, God, go. Let's do awesome things. And I could see him try to move, but he couldn't because I was wrapped around his ankles, much like my children do, do to me sometimes. And he said to me, Katya, we're not going to go very far if this is how you want to live. You've got all the control, but no adventure. And then I saw him lift me up and put me on his shoulders All of a sudden, I had absolutely no control of the direction or the speed that we were going in. All of a sudden, it was much scarier than when I was where I was before. But all of a sudden, we were on the move. And he said to me, you can either live in a realm that you understand or you can live in a realm where you trust me. You cannot do both. Because Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart or lean on your own understanding. You cannot do both. You cannot live with both realities. Which one do you want to live in? Do you want to trust or do you want to understand? He'll love you in both realms just the same. You will be just as much of a Christian in both realms. But I want to tell you, the adventure is only in one. Which one do you want to live in? Trust or understand? Do you want to live in Isaac or do you want to live in Ishmael? Because here Abraham's saying, oh, that Ishmael might live before you because he's weary of the unseen realm. And God is saying, just a little further. The laughter of weariness. And some of us are in that place where we're like, God, your promises are ace. Can we downgrade them just a bit now? For some of us, we've waited so long that now we want to downsize. At first, we were willing for Isaac, but five, ten years passed. Then we're like, can't we just settle with Ishmael? You know, I find it fascinating, the story of Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus. God says to Moses, he gives him such specific instructions that he's to free the people of Israel from the hand of the Egyptians and take them into the desert. They're all to leave with everything and go worship God in the desert. 
And as the plagues start happening and things get harder and harder, what's interesting is that the enemy in the form of Pharaoh puts a few compromises in Moses' path. Ever notice that? Exodus 8. Hey, I hear what you're saying. You want the people of Israel to worship. That's what God's asked. Why don't you just do it in this land instead? Downsize the promise just a little bit. Exodus 10. No, no, I, I, I get what you're saying. You need to leave the land. Okay, that makes sense. Why don't you just take the guys, the women and the children don't make any difference anyway. Downsize the promise just a little bit. And I want to say to you guys, if you haven't experienced this already, you will experience it at some point because it's just the way things happen. When we're carrying big promises from God, when opposition comes or delay comes, the enemy will give us ample opportunity to downsize the promise. Don't give ground. Stick to your guns about what God has said. Go for Isaac. Don't settle at Ishmael. The second moment of laughter is broken laughter, the laughter of pain. 24 years after the promise, and God is now arriving when it's all too late and all hope is lost. And Sarah overhears the promise again to Abraham. This time next year, Sarah will hold a baby, and she laughs. She says, now, now when my body is worn, am I to know this? Now, when I'm way past menopause, what's she saying? She's saying, you're too late. She's saying, I waited. I did wait. I hoped. I really did. I prayed and I fasted. And I gave testimony even before the breakthrough. You're too late. This is like some kind of cruel, mean joke now that you turn up when all hope is lost and now you're like, now's the time. Well, clearly it can't be anymore. What is God trying to teach her? He's trying to teach her there is no scenario where all hope is lost. I love it in John 11, I think it is, or John 10 where Lazarus has died. It's John 11, Lazarus has died. And Lazarus and Mary and Martha were such great friends with Jesus. And Lazarus had got sick and they'd called for Jesus and they knew he would come. He's like one of their besties. Of course he's going to turn up. This is when you've got like the inside track to the person who's most important. Great, Jesus is going to rock up. He doesn't. And what do the girls say to Jesus when finally, after delay, he rocks up and Lazarus is dead? Jesus, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. What are they saying? You're too late. We believed, we hoped, we trusted, and you arrived too late. And he's trying to teach them, even the grave contains hope in the kingdom. There is no hopeless situation, either in this life or in the next. We will see him work all things for good. What is he trying to teach us? There is no hopeless situation. Even when the enemy tells you it is all gone, he is too late. God is trying to tell us there is no hopeless situation in the kingdom. And it's amazing because Sarah, we're told she laughs and that she lies about it because she's afraid. What's going on? What's she afraid of? Being, she's afraid that maybe she'll get punished now for laughing at the words of the Lord. She's afraid of the shame of that moment. Whatever the root of that fear is, the the underlying, the deepest root is a misunderstanding of the affection of God for her. Because 1 John 4 tells us perfect love casts out fear, which means every fear is rooted because of a lack of an experience of love. Every fear If you have a fear of provision, if you're worried about what will come tomorrow, whether you'll be able to pay your bills, you're afraid of what it will look like tomorrow, I want to tell you it's not because of what's lacking in your bank balance, it's because you haven't fully encountered the love of God for you. It's true, it's biblical. Because fear happens when we don't understand his affection for us. 
When we understand just how much he loves us, we don't become, we're not afraid anymore because we know no matter the scenario, he loves us, he loves us, he loves us, which means he's got us. But for Sarah, she didn't understand his affection towards her, so she's afraid in that moment when she's been caught out. I love the moment of Jesus with his disciples in Mark chapter 4. It's a familiar story. They're in the storm. Jesus is fast asleep because incidentally, in the reality that Jesus was living in, in kingdom reality, there was no storm. That's a great picture for how we are with the potential that we have to live in, even in the midst of storms. Because we're a kingdom people and in the kingdom, there is perfect peace even in a storm. But anyway, I digress. Jesus is fast asleep in the boat. And the disciples wake him up and they say to him, Master, Master, don't you care that we're drowning? And he gets up and he calms the storm and they're in awe of who he is. And he turns to them and he says, have you still no faith? And we always think that his question of have you still no faith is a question of power. Do you have no faith that I'd be able to help you in this moment? But I don't think that's what he's saying because I believe his question is in response to their question, which was a question not of power, but of affection. Do you not care that we're drowning? What the disciples are saying isn't, Jesus, can't you do something? What they're saying is, don't you love us enough to do something? Because affection is the big question of our hearts. And when things go wrong for us, and when things become hopeless, we think, and when things get delayed, the enemy is not coming to confuse us about the power of God. He's coming to confuse us about the affection of God. But perfect love casts out fear. I want to encourage you, if you're in a season where it's been painful and delayed, and I'm not belittling the pain, I have walked through many, many seasons like this of my own. But what I'm saying is the answer to those seasons is to allow him to encounter you with his affection again. Because that changes everything in that moment, because his love casts out the fear that the enemy is trying to bring in in that moment. What's amazing is when you read Hebrews 11 account of this story, it tells us, it it recounts it in such a beautiful way, which is wonderful because that's a picture of how God recounts all of our lives. God puts on the glasses, the lens of grace when he looks at our lives, which means we all come off looking really awesome. I just want you to reassure you about that one. Read Hebrews 11 and then read Genesis and you'll know what I'm talking about. But through the lens of grace, God speaks about Sarah and honors her for her faith. And she says she re- and it says she received the promise because she considered him who promised faithful. Now, the awesome thing about that word considered is that it means leading thought. It doesn't mean that every thought she had in her mind was of, his, of the faithfulness of God. In fact, I'm betting that there were hundreds of thoughts quite contrary to that. But she chose in that moment to lead herself with the thought of his faithfulness. I want to encourage you, whatever jumble your thoughts are in, make sure that you allow one thought to be the leading thought which is his faithfulness, which is his affection. And you know how you can grow in that is by surrounding yourself with people who will tell you testimonies of his affection and of his faithfulness and of his goodness. That's why testimony is so powerful in our churches because testimony is not just about hearing nice stories of breakthrough. Testimony in itself is a word that means to do again, which means every time we hear a testimony, the power is released in the room for the very same thing to happen again in other people lives. That's why we should listen to testimonies. That's why we come into agreement with testimonies because someone else's breakthrough leads us into our very own. Lead yourself. Allow your leading thought to be that of his affection and that of his faithfulness, even when you've got a jumble of a million other thoughts. He gets the other million. Lead yourself with the thought of his faithfulness. Lead yourself with the thought of his goodness. You know, how we view God 
is the most important determining factor about what we will see in our lifetimes. In Matthew 25, there's this parable of the talents where the master gives different talents to the people, in, in, um, to his servants before he goes away. And they all do different things with the talents, but one of the servants hides the talent. And when the master finally comes back to see what they did with it, to see what, how they invested those talents, that servant says, I knew you to be a harsh master and therefore I did nothing with the talent. The story doesn't say the master was harsh. It says the servant thought the master to be harsh. And so everything about what the servant then did was determined by how he saw the master. I want to tell you how you see God is the most important, the most crucial determining factor for what you will do in your lifetime. If you see him as in control, but slightly scary on the goodness front, then you will be paralyzed in moments where you need to press through because you won't be sure of his affection for you. If you see him to be hard, then you will struggle to take risk. If you see him to be a God who looks for performance, then you will always be slightly scared to push forward because you won't know what he'll do if you fail. But if you see him as he is revealed in Jesus, kind and gracious, one who never ever bruises, one who is downcast, one who is full of healing, one who brings breakthrough, one who doesn't understand the meaning hopeless because he always brings hope, then your life will look radical as it was intended to be because you will know him as he really is. Third laughter Laughter of fulfillment. God does do what he promised eventually. After a long journey, he does it. And Sarah says, God has made laughter for me and many will come and laugh with me. It's such a beautiful thing when a community understands how to celebrate together. We've got to understand how to celebrate someone else's breakthrough. We've got to understand how to celebrate someone else's victory. You're waiting for that promotion, but the guy who's just become a Christian got a promotion and you've been fasting for the last 15 years and you didn't, and you're sitting there going, but I earned mine quicker than he did. No, we've got to be a community that understands the breakthrough of another because we are brothers and sisters in one family, which means the breakthrough of another impacts our own breakthrough. It means that we all come into breakthrough together because we're not siblings competing, we're siblings together in victory. We celebrate one another. We're not fighting for position. There's more than enough room for us all. And so what happens in this moment is the laughter of fulfillment and it's beautiful because the entire community is invited into that same laughter. Some of us need to process our pain with Jesus because you'll know if this is hitting a nerve with you because you're sitting there and you're thinking, I always struggle when someone else gets forward. I always struggle when someone else has the better prophetic word. I always struggle when someone else, whatever it is. God's putting his finger on that in this moment. Because if we cannot celebrate someone else's victory, we'll never be able to enter into our own. So laughter of fulfillment. And then lastly, and we're coming into land. It's the laughter of ridicule. Thing is, and I think it's Karen who spoke about this earlier, that tiny little shoot of hope The thing is, kingdom breakthrough almost always starts so small. It's almost imperceptible. If you don't look closely, you might miss it. And in this story, we see when Isaac is two or three and they're throwing a feast to celebrate the breakthrough of the promise, Ishmael stands there and he goes, starts laughing, is this it. Wait, all my life I've been told I'm not the son of promise because there was something bigger coming along. Is this it? You've got to be kidding. Look at this kid. You're saying this is what God promised. Surely not. 
Because the wisdom of man does not understand kingdom breakthrough. Careful of the wisdom of man. Careful. Because it will stop you short. Even as you're in the breakthrough, it will deny the breakthrough so you step back from all that God is doing. You know, you read in the Gospels that the Pharisees who knew the scriptures better than anybody else, they'd memorized it all of their lives. You would have thought they'd been able to recognize Jesus. They'd memorized him their whole lives. But we're told so many moments they took offense at him. We're told he goes to Nazareth and the people see him and they go, this can't be the Messiah. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Because human wisdom doesn't recognize kingdom breakthrough. Careful of human wisdom. Careful of the wisdom of the world. Because even in the moment of your breakthrough, when the shoot is so small, when that little budding hope that you've been praying for is just so tiny, and people will go, no, 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 calm down. That's not what it is. You've got to think sensibly now. In that moment, we can step back from what God is already releasing because we allow worldly wisdom to come in and rob us of the moment of breakthrough. It's the laughter of ridicule. Don't give in to it. Once you've heard the promise of God, whatever, however outrageous it is, believe him. Believe him. You know, and um, I think it's in chapter 15 where God makes a covenant with Abraham. We're told, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That word believe is an ongoing verb. It means he didn't believe one off. He kept believing. He believed again. Today, I'm going to believe again. For 25 years, he kept believing on a daily basis. Some of you are carrying promises that you've been carrying for so long. Some of you are battling hopelessness and you don't know what to do about it. Allow him to encounter you with his affection for you. But I want to tell you, it is worth living in the realm of trust over the realm of understanding. I would choose that every time, even when I get weary, and even when it gets difficult, and even in the moments of pain where I'm wondering, where on earth are you? It's got too late. Because the impossible is worth it. Because his kingdom is worth it. And in the moment where we allow that shoot to be protected as it grows, and in that moment where we celebrate even the tiniest victory, we'll see that it grows into an oak tree that will provide shade and life for many, many, many. If you're someone who's praying for healing and you only ever see tiny little little fingernails healed, don't allow the enemy to say to you, well, that's not really healing. Can you heal a fingernail all on your own? No. So that's a healing. Celebrate it. When all you see is headaches and the enemy says to you, well, that's not going to get anyone out of a wheelchair. Don't listen to him. Can you heal a headache all on your own? No. So it's a miracle. Celebrate the tiny moments of breakthrough because as we learn to celebrate the moment of breakthrough, so much more will come. But in that moment where the enemy, when worldly wisdom wants to rob you of the momentum of that breakthrough, stand your ground and say, this is God and I will not move. I will not give ground. Don't give ground. I want to pray for some breakthrough. Julian, do you want to come up? We've got a few minutes. Julian and I, um, and this, this is something that we know that God has put on our lives is breakthrough. And uh, I love going after breakthrough because we've seen God do so many crazy things at the last minute or beyond the last minute for us. 
And I have faith that there are people in this room where you've been holding on to promises, where you've tried the downsizing method and you've tried the giving up method and you've tried the disappointment with God and brokenness. And right now, even now, there's a tiny shoot of hope that was prophesied in the worship time that is growing in your heart. And I wanna celebrate that and bless that. And I wanna ask God to accelerate the growth of that so that it will become an oak tree in your heart and you will step into the breakthrough that you've been waiting for. So this is a super simple time. Listen, we don't need soft playing music for the kingdom of God to break out. What I'm gonna ask you is if you're trusting for breakthrough and you wanna see it, will you stand up? This won't be every to everyone maybe, but if you are holding on to a promise and you've been saying, God, it's time, when is the time? I wanna say to you, I declare it even in this spirit now, it is time. Even now in this moment, those of you who You've been holding on to promises for so many years. I declare in this moment today that it is time, that the tide is turning. In the name of Jesus, I speak to promises that have been delayed. I speak to purposes that have stumbled. And I say, now is the time for fruition. Now is the time for fulfillment. I speak to couples who've been waiting for years to get pregnant. I speak to wombs and I say, be open because God did not make you barren. God wants to give give you children. God wants to bless you with children. And so in the name of Jesus, I speak fruitfulness in this room for those waiting for pregnancies. I speak healthy babies to be born in this community. In the name of Jesus, I say there will be no more miscarriages in the name of Jesus. And I mean that physically and I mean that spiritually. That those of you where you felt like, oh, it's about to happen. No, it's died again. Oh, it's about to happen. No, it's died again. We say stop in the name of Jesus to miscarriages. And we say, this will be a community where health and wholeness is your portion, where you will have a miraculous birth rate in your community, both in the physical and in the spiritual. I speak to illnesses, chronic illnesses, where the doctors have given up and where they're saying, we can't do anything about it. In the name of Jesus, I speak healing to bodies now. And I say, no more, no more lying of the enemy to minds in this place. Anxiety, where you're out of tablets, and they don't know what to give you to deal with your anxiety. Anxiety, you have no authority in the people of God. Fear, you have no authority in the people people of God. Depression, you have no authority in the people of God. And so I come against you in the name of Jesus and I speak hope and I speak peace. I believe there are um, grown-ups here who are suffering with night terrors. In the name of Jesus, I speak peace in the nighttime hours. No more trouble in the nighttime hour, but you will sleep, you will sleep soundly, and you will sleep fully in the name of Jesus.